Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come together to worship you and the study of your word and to have you speak back to us through your word and ask that you help us to see what you would have us see and learn what you'd have us to learn from these Proverbs. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, Proverbs 23. And we left off on 9, so we're going to be starting at 10. Remove not the old landmark, and enter not into the fields of the fatherless. For their Redeemer is mighty, and he shall plead their cause with you. Apply your heart unto instruction, and your ears unto the words of knowledge. Without, withhold not correction from the child, for if the, you beat him with a rod, he shall not die. You shall beat him with a rod, and he shall, and shall deliver him his soul from hell. So we'll stop there with those five verses. Which five? No, Starting verse 10. Have the 10, newspaper. <laughs> 10 to 14. 10 to 14 we just read. Chapter 23. We'll wait for Annie to sit down and we'll get started. Oh, go ahead. I'm slow as molasses. All right, verse 10. Remove not the old landmarks and enter not into the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is mighty, and he shall plead their cause. This is a... We talked once before, remove not the landmarks, the old landmarks. And who remembers what the old markers that they would put up? Usually a rock, a stack of, if you didn't have a tree or a, or a, or a creek or something, you put up a stack of rocks, or, and that was your boundary marker. It marked your, the edge of your land. And basically, they were movable, so they go, don't move them. Don't cheat somebody by moving the marker. You know, and we have the same thing that goes on in this day and age where people will try to mm-hmm. you know, move the stakes a little bit and build their fence on, on the other person's land, you know, trying to increase three feet or more. Uh, but we now have surveyors that can come in and, and resurvey the land and say, no, you're, you, you've moved your boundary. Uh, the actual believing and applying it to our life. There's one thing to know things. They, be, they become so real that we apply them. And this is where we want everything from God to get, is getting into our heart and becoming more than just a precept or a concept. We want it to be able to get crucified. That is when he becomes who I am. Core beliefs. Core beliefs. And this is why it's great to get kids saved because they core beliefs slowly. Because core beliefs, core beliefs are those beliefs that you act on without ever thinking about it. Those who can be pathological liars who have gotten a core belief that lying is not bad. You know, and they, they just lie. The very first words out of their mouth is, is a lie because it's become a core value for them. And as you get core values of Christ and the word, it'll change your heart. It'll change the way. You it's a very important thing because if your core values weren't raised that way and you haven't changed. And God, you read the word of God is totally important as to what we're going to get out of it. Am I reading it just like I'm reading a book, or am I reading it for food, for the spirit? And I can tell you, oftentimes I read it as a book uh, for my just obligate, obligatory reading time. My study time's totally different. I'm, I don't study with it as a book, but those times when I'm just reading, oftentimes it's, it is just reading. It doesn't mean it doesn't touch me in some ways. You know, it's still got its value. It's the word of God. It does not return void. But there's a big difference on those days when I'm just reading it to get through the reading and the days when I'm reading it saying, God, show me how, I, how I'm to apply this today. And so we, we want to look at that. And that's what this verse is talking about. Apply it. Listen to it. Hear it to obey. Verse 13. Withhold not 
from the child. For if you beat him with a rod, he shall not die. You shall beat him with the rod and shall deliver his soul from hell. And this is pretty cruel. And, and it is talking about actually <laughs> causing pain. And the problem with, especially in most of today's ways of raising kids and trying to discipline kids, uh, go sit down in that time out and think about what you've done. Well, if the kid's young enough, it doesn't mean anything other than me sitting there saying, I wonder why I'm sitting in this corner bored. You know, they don't understand why, why, they're, why they're sitting in that corner or standing, you know, sitting away from everybody else. All they know is they're not having fun. We look at how God disciplines us. God puts pain in our life when he's disciplining us. Sometimes great pain in our life when he's disciplining us. And he is serious when he says that we are to apply discipline. And for a young child, when they're disobeying and they get that swat on the rear end <laughs> that causes pain, all of a sudden they're going to associate, do this wrong and get pain. Yep. Okay? And as they get older, then, then you can start taking things away from them or, or sitting them down because there's a cognizant what I did and what I'm going through. But even then, it's, it, it takes a point where when does it switch over? I don't know. It depends on each kid. Because God gives us pain. He gives us discipline that hurts. When you hit the workplace, they're going to give you discipline that hurts because usually you get either suspended for a period of time or you just get flat out fired. <laughs> And all of a sudden, you're in financial pain, especially if you have a house to take, and a home to take care of, and a family to take care of. There's, there's pain. There's instant pain on reaction. There's this chances of having your hours cut for a while if you're not going to behave and do things right. We as adults have painful consequences for our actions from God. And yet, we want to try to teach kids that there's no consequence for their, no, no pain in their consequence. I don't teach him anything. <laughs> it doesn't teach him. No, it doesn't teach him anything. So I got to sit down over in this corner for a while. I think it was because I did something wrong, but it doesn't. I'm just going to be bored for a little while. And you got that old story about the kid who was told to sit down in the corner, and you know because he was disobeying his mom. He goes, "Well, I'm sitting down. In, my body's sitting down, but my spirit's running around in the yard." You know, he's basically saying, "Hey, you're punishing me, but I'm not punished. I'm, I'm out doing what I want." <laughs> All right, verse 15. Here's an here's exhortation. My son, if your heart be wise, my heart shall rejoice, even mine. And heart here is seat of the emotions. Then we're going to be attacked. And they're going to say, because we're so intolerant, we're going to lose our, we're, we will lose our tax-exempt status, which may hurt some of the that we get because some people only give because they get to get a tax exemption. You know, I don't know that that's our church or not, but I don't think it is in our church because we've got mostly people on that are older that aren't paying taxes anyway. Word of God because they're being so persecuted for it's sin. And what that means, who knows? May end up a day that I go to jail. We want to be ready. We want to be ready for what's coming. Jesus said that they hated him, that they would hate us. And it's been amazing for America that we've had as much freedom for as long as we've had the freedom that we've had, but that time is closing down. We have been the one place in the world where true religious freedom has been very much abounding. England had forms of religious freedom, but nothing like America. And most of Europe did not have good freedom either because it was very Catholic-oriented for most of it. Spain, Spain, France, Italy were very Catholic-oriented, and you, you were, could be discriminated against for being a Christian, though you didn't usually get 
persecuted. We are what makes this this country. We have not been a melting pot for a long time. We kicked them out. This country, this country's success was really that the in the immigrants who came in became right. American. Right. Mm -hmm. With their little distinctives on their on their on their cases. But the problem has been since we've tried to make let them come in and not become American. And we've seen that over and over mm -hmm. with the people that we've got in. They 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 don't become American. They want they want to be they want to be their nationality, living in America with our freedoms. And you're right, because they don't understand where our freedoms are based in. If they yeah. manage to get the Christianity out of it, which is where they're trying to head, this country will not be America anymore. No. And it won't it won't be anywhere close to being America because Everything about our country was founded on Christian morality. All the founding fathers said that. They, they, they knew that the Constitution was a good document. They knew that the Declaration of Independence was a good document. But they also knew that the only reason a republic could be a success was because of the Christian morality that held it together. Which is why every time we try to make a, demo a democracy in some other part of the world, it fails. Because the Christian morality isn't there to underpin it. Mm. To have a democracy, you have to have good, honest elections. And if you don't have the Christian morality of honesty, you will not have an honest election. And if you don't have the idea of truly representing others because they're, because they're created in God's image and you're to protect them, then the, the Politicians end up doing what's best for them, like our current politicians are doing in this country. They get elected and they do what's best for them, not for the people that they're supposed to be representing because they do not have a Christian moral ethic backing them up. They are now politicians. They are not statesmen. Statesmen had a good, strong, biblical, I'm going to protect my people I represent. I'm going to take a stand. And nowadays, all they do is what gets me reelected is what I have to do. You know, I can say whatever I want to whatever group. And, you know, in today's world, it's harder to do than it used to be because we've got TV filming them at every, every step. But the crazy thing is they'll say one thing to one group and another, exactly the opposite to another group, and nobody calls them on it. Right. And I don't understand that. It, it's just there's a group thing going on and that goes out there that you know, as long as you're saying what I want to hear, you're okay. And... The, and it's a really sad thing. And because we've gotten away from an absolute standard of God, and they, they can say whatever they want. And it's an amazing when you talk to people with no absolute standard. Because they'll say two diametrically opposed points of view in the same five-minute section of time and not realize that they've said diametrically opposite points of view. I used to point this out to the, the people when I was back in school and the in the 80s, I'm going, what you just said? You said this and this. They go, yeah. I'm going, they're opposites. You can't believe both. Oh, I do. I go, how? Right. <laughs> you know, they have no critical thinking ability at all because whatever they say, if they believe it to be true, it's true. Even if it's metrically opposed, they will say both sides of the coin and say, I believe both. They're schizophrenic because there is no absolute. You know, we need the absolute of God, the morality of God, to be able to have a rational world. Yes. And we don't have a rational world anymore. We've got businesses that tell you do anything you want to make money, and then they gripe and complain that, every, that all the businesses are unethical, including the business owners. 
You know, they say their employees are unethical. Well, you're doing unethical things in your company. Why shouldn't your employees be unethical? You know, you're telling them I'm going to do what it takes to make money, and then you're mad that they're stealing you blind and, and cheating you and, and taking, their, taking their, their stuff and going, you know, going to other places and delivering what you paid for them to develop someplace else. You know, because they're not standing on the absolute truth of God. And this is what makes us as Christians un, ununderstandable to the world. We take a stand and say, I am standing on God's word and I cannot change, change positions because his word is truth. They don't understand an absolute truth unless it's something they believe. And this is why it's hard to witness to people and everything because... Satan is getting so much out there that there's an abs no absolute truth. There is no right or wrong. And you know, people are buying it. They're buying it because they've been brainwashed into it for so long. When I was going to school, they started this absolute truth stuff is not real. And it was very light when I was in school. I, when I went back to college in the 80s, it was shocking to me to see how far there, the, the teaching of no absolute truth had gone and how the college-age people are being brainwashed completely into there is no absolute truth. And a matter of fact, they're being taught that the best thing you can do is do whatever you want, and then that's your total self-fulfillment, is when you do what you want in spite of what anybody else says about it. As long as it's good for you, it's what's good. That is a scary place because that means you can do whatever you want to anybody else as long as you are being satisfied. In the name of freedom. In the name of, well, not even that. It's just in the name of, uh, I need to self-actualize. I need to be doing what is best for me. Now, when you've got an entire population doing what's best for them, you're going to have all kinds of conflict. It's self-centered. It's, self, it's yeah. totally self-centered. And, and what they've done is they've flipped, up, flipped God's ways completely upside down. And what God says is this thing to do is what they call the the top of the pyramid. Whatever is good for me instead of whatever good for others. And that's the way God is. He says, okay, you, you can serve yourself and be a sinner and just get away, or you can climb the, the ladder of, of God's truth and be serving others, helping others. Are they saying there is no such thing as absolute truth? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I want corn, but all I have I can afford is wheat. I'll bet the wheat and wait till corn goes. That's how stupid that there is no absolute. Is. Well, the whole the whole salutes. It's a logical to say there are no absolutes means that your statement is wrong. Logical statement from the beginning, and the problem is that in reality we know there are absolutes. We know that we we even know that there's moral absolutes that are stuck in the core of our being. And I've shared with you. I used to talk when people would say there were no absolutes. I'd walk away with their with their keys to their purse, and and they'd go, "What are you doing?" I go, well, i got to go sell the car, this new car that I just acquired and this new house I got acquired. They go, what? I go, well, you said there's no absolutes. I have no problem taking your, your stuff. They go, well, you can't do that. It's wrong. I go, says who? And then I give it back to them and say, don't tell me there's no absolutes when you just proved that there's absolutes. <laughs> you know, everybody in their heart knows that there's absolutes. And they know when they're violated. Because God has put a conscience. Now, we are conscious and try to say that it's not a problem, but we know, even when we know and we've done seared our conscience, we know that it's wrong. In our heart. 
And when people stand before God, about those people who don't know about Jesus, well, violated the conscience that God's given them. And they will be guilty of what knowledge they do have. Whatever knowledge they have, they'll be guilty of. Because God says, we know when we've sinned and done wrong. And the only thing that really gets us saved is by going to God and saying, God, I can't live your life. I need you to help. And at that point, you're putting your heart into Jesus. Whether you know it or not, you put your heart and your hand into Jesus' hand. Because he's the only one that will help you. And so God will look and say, what did you do with what knowledge you had? And it's amazing when you read the missionary stories where missionaries would go into these countries that had never heard about the gospel. And these guys would come up and say, we've been waiting to hear the rest of the story. We had a dream 500 years ago being held on by our fathers uh, that we needed to turn to God. And we just don't know who this God is that we're supposed to turn to. But we've turned to him as best we can. And it's happened more and more times because God is going to give the truth to people. Do they have a complete truth? Not necessarily, but they'll be judged by what truth they have. And the gospel is going out. In the Muslim world, thousands of Muslims are getting saved every day. A lot of them from dream, direct dreams of Jesus. You know, he's saying, I'm the one you're seeking. He knows when they're seeking that, that answer. God knows and he will make sure that they hear the message they need to hear to come to him. You know, whether it's by dream, whether it's by vision, whether it's by somebody just coming across their path, we don't know. God is going to take care of it. If Abraham fought so hard for those people that he didn't care for because of the way they lived, he loved Ishmael. He loved him. In heaven, does he fight for him? I, I know you don't know the answer. But does he fight for him today? Does he remind Jesus of the promise that they gave Hagar? I don't know. And, say, and, and, and if no other way to reach my Muslim children, would you? Jesus say, here, I'll send them a dream or two. Anything is possible. I mean, it may also be that God's going to remember his own word because he did say that Ishmael would be blessed and would become a great nation, and he became a great nation. And thank you, Abraham, for that prayer because now we have the whole Middle Eastern conflict because he prayed for uh-huh. he blessed. Well, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So. All right, where did we leave off here? Uh, huh? 14. 14. No. 18. 18. All right. 18. For surely there is an end, and your expectation shall not be cut off. There your hope will not be cut off. There is an end. And this is what we really want to be able to understand. There is an end. God is not impotent. He is strong. He is almighty. He is is omnipotent. He is the strength. And he says, there will come an end. Your hope is not going to go unfulfilled. Hopefully our, our great hope is heaven. That should always be our hope. And... Abraham wandered all through Canaan with his expectation on heavenly city, a city built with no hands, as you're told in Hebrews. And he wandered around, and he had one piece of property at the end of his life, and he was told that he was going to have all of the promised land. He had one child for all that wandering around in the wilderness, 50-some years of wandering around Canaan. And all he had to show for it was one piece of property with a cave and a burial site yep. and one child. 
Isaac wandered all around for his entire life. <laughs> his entire, what was it, 120, 130 years, he wandered around Cain, uh, the promised land. And all he had was one piece of property inherited from his dad and two kids. <laughs> a promise that he's going to be a great nation, a promise that he's going to have a great, great world and, and descendants that are going to number the the stars of the sky and the sand of the desert. Isaac came back and he only had two pieces of property because he bought one outside of Bethel and 12 kids. <laughs> <laughs> and then they even moved to Egypt. <laughs> so, and he ended his Egypt. Yeah. But God says your expectation is, is going to be there. I'm going to fulfill the promise. And he took them to the promised land. Took a while. It took them... It took them uh, 200 years in Egypt and, and slavery, and God took them out and delivered them to their land. But the promise was fulfilled. Hmm? Oh. That's life things on lunch. Oh, okay. Don't let them eat too much. All right. Uh, hear you, my son, and be wise. Guide your heart in the way. And this is important for us. Hear. Hear God and be wise. But the most important part of this sentence, guide your heart in the way. The problem we have with emotions is emotions lie to us all the time. We are not to live in emotions. In the, in the handbook on beginning, beginning with uh, Christianity in the office, it's a, it's a picture that I've seen many, many years. There's the engine of truth the, the, the coal car of faith, and then emotions. You never want to put emotions on part of the train because emotions lie to us. Emotions are when we start praying and we don't feel God and we go, man, I just, I'm feeling all alone. There, maybe there isn't a God. And we need to stand on the truth, the truth of God. When we stand in a marriage, it's so easy for us to say, I don't feel like I'm in love, so it's time to get divorced. And that's what the world does. Number one, they don't understand love. Okay, the first part is they never understood love. Probably most of the marriages in America do not get married because, couples do not get married because of love. They get married because of lust and emotion. And money. And maybe money. <laughs> but even when they say, I'm in love with each other, they don't know what love is. The only reason to get married is to be having objective love. I choose to love, therefore I am, I am in love. That is God's love, his objective. He says, I'm going to love you. And because he says, I'm going to love you, I have chosen to love you. We can count on his love because it will never change because it's not based on subjective love. It's, it's not, well, you haven't done what I want, so I don't love you anymore. And the problem that we have out there, especially in marriage, is people get married because they're infatuated, they're in lust, they're in, they're in whatever other term you might want to talk about. And that's, that's where you usually start with the feelings. You, know, you start with feelings. But if you keep on the feelings, the feelings will eventually disappear. Mm -hmm. Okay? And when they disappear, then you've got to decide, was I truly in love? And the answer in our world is most of the time, no, I never loved you, so we're going to get divorced. You know, I never loved you, and they are right. They never did. They got married for the wrong reasons, 
even and they did not take the, their commitments to God seriously and make a covenant covenant with God and, and their and their spouse and there's where the problem lies in the first time they don't feel in love they go well I never loved you anyway I'm just getting out of this it's no fun anymore I'm not getting anything out of this so it's I'm not sticking around and this is why when I Yes, if anybody that asked me to get them married, they're going, I'm going to tell them two things. Number one, the only marriage I will do is an Arizona covenant marriage. And that is, you make a covenant, the only way to end that marriage is through adultery or death because it takes God's rules. The second part of that covenant marriage is that they've got to go through counseling. And during counseling, we're going to talk about what is love, the roles of a wife, the roles of a husband, what is marriage, and go right down, the, right down through about six weeks of courses. And the two people that I've had come to me, I've scared them off by going through this, what is, what is marriage and what is love. But I'm not going to marry somebody who's not going to stay together. And if you don't understand what love is and what the roles of each individual party is and what marriage is, it's too easy to be, say, I'm giving up and, and leaving. And in soldering and welding, do you two guys know anything about it? You're marrying... It's called, in, in that field, it's called marrying a marriage of two oars or metals together. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the same picture when Jesus, when uh, in the Genesis, when it says that the, the husband is to leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, it literally means to be soldered or to be glued together. You ain't going to get them apart. And that's the point. You can't. When you, when you break a good glue, you know, not cheap Elmer's glue, but a good wood glue, creates a bond between the wood or if you solder or or melt two things together you become a a weld a weld and you cannot break the place where they're put together it rips the material apart to break them apart and that is why there's so much damage done to people who get divorced and it doesn't matter who they are they are damaged whether they believe in God or not they are damaged and it rips their soul, it rips their life apart because God connects them at a soul level and intermixes them into one. And to be broken apart tears them, tears their lives. And you can see it, I've seen it over and over. I saw it in my parents when they got divorced and the, the bitter attitudes and the brokenness and this is never going to happen to me again and all that stuff that goes on with the divorce. Uh, the bitterness toward the other party because your life is just miserable and what you thought was going to free you up and make you happy tore your life apart and all of a sudden you realize it's torn apart. It is important for people to understand. And I will not marry somebody until they understand the importance of marriage and what marriage is. Because it is critical. So critical to be understood because the damage is great. If you know divorced people and you talk to them you can hear the bitterness about the, about the divorce. You can hear the bitterness about the breakup. And I'm talking about some people that have been divorced for 30, 40 years. They're still a torn soul that is bitter. Bitter that it was torn. And they realize that the hardships they had were probably better than what they went through because of tearing it apart. And it's a scary thing when we tear, don't obey God's word. And this is why it's so important that we don't join our souls to one another until you're married. And that's part of the problem with homosexuality and fornication and adultery. You're joining your soul together with another person and somebody who's not your spouse and ripping that 
because there is no real connection, you're ripping it apart again. And people are ripping their souls to shreds because of all the things they're doing wrong. And all the one night stands and all the short term hookups that they have. But you can you ask God, if you're a person that has done that, to cleanse you, take all the acts of adultery away, all the bonding with other souls you don't really want to be bonded with, wash it, cleanse it, and make it clean again. Can you do that, and will he? God loves you enough to, that he may do that, but, you, but there's also consequence to sin. Some people get remarried. No, Remarriage does not fix the torn soul. Because you can, but we can't take ours and wash it. Any any time that you're dealing with consequences for sin, God can erase the consequences. He usually doesn't. Okay, he's perfectly able to. He can. Usually, he's going to say you you did wrong and you're going to suffer the consequences because reaping and sowing. And the reaping and sowing is not God making it happen. This is just a law that he put that he put in place. You sow seed, you will reap. And you trigger it. And you trigger it, and God most of the time will say, you will suffer the consequences and know that, that it's your fault. Now, can he forgive? You know, does he forgive? Absolutely, he forgives. Can he say enough of the consequences? Yes, they can happen too. I've seen many people who smoked all their life, got emphysema, and... And God will forgive us. He can give us peace over the situation, but there will always be that ache to show us that we did wrong. And it's there for a secondary purposes. Hopefully, if we have that ache, we're not going to do it again. Okay? You know, and that's the key. If we, if we suffer the consequence and we have that ache, God's got a pain in our life that says, this is the pain. This is why you got it. Don't do it again. And then when we do it again, we go, okay, God, I just, I just can't learn my lesson. And God says, well, you got, now you got double the pain. I'm going to say this, and I don't care if you leave it on that tape or not. It took the side of a mountain in the middle of snow for me to let a scream out. I didn't know me capable of doing. No, I said no, and I'm not ever going to have to say it again. Do you understand me? And I haven't, and I'm not going to. <laughs> and I'm not going to put myself in a position of fear either because God don't want me doing that he knows I know better yeah. and that's what he wants us to really do is know well enough to stay out Thank of trouble you, not to even put ourselves in that temptation and I will say this no matter how much victory you've had over a place if you've got a sin that has been a problem area in your life don't put yourself in a challenge of it thinking that you've gotten victory over that that area because yeah, the moment you wants. the moment you think you can get through it God's going to say okay let me just show you how strong your flesh is yeah. I'm just going to pull back while you put yourself in the in the wrong path and that's what he's saying here is guide your heart in the way God's way keep in his way keep away from the the temptations of sin that are out there and Satan's standing back saying whoa is this easy I ain't even got to do anything but watch her and make a fool of herself yeah and that's exactly true when we put ourselves in the way of sin we're Satan doesn't have to do anything his demons don't have to do our flesh is going to be very happy to lead us down the wrong way the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the lust of the Three of them, I can't remember. Doesn't where. matter. There's a third one. We have three areas in our own flesh that will try to take us down. 
lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, lust of the taste? No, it's not or taste. I don't remember. I'll have to look it back up again. Are you, uh, uh, no. uh, normally, I'll just rip them right off without thinking, which is probably why it's not there today. But we need to be so careful because if we want to put ourselves in a place, our, we don't need Satan to sin because our body wants to sin, our flesh wants to sin, our eyes want to lead us into sin. Uh, you know, there is so much out there that the pride of life is the last one. Pride of life, yes. But so the there is so much there. Well, it's, right they're all the, the same pretty much. Yeah. They're all the same. So we want to be careful. We want to walk in God's way. And it takes a conscious decision to walk in God's way. And that goes with saying, God, I want you to crucify my flesh so I'm not walking in my way. Help me to walk in what your word says. And it means coming into his word and saying, God, show me how to live. Show me how to live with you and make correct decisions. And sometimes it means just, God, show me how to live through this hour or through this day. Sometimes it could be every second, mm -hmm. depending on where you're at. You guys see how much nicer you are than me? <laughs> Verse 20. Not among the, the wine bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh, for the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe the man with rags. Hearken unto your father that begat you, and despise not your mother when she is old. Buy the truth and sell it not, for wisdom and instruction and understanding. The father of righteousness shall greatly re of the righteous shall greatly rejoice, and he that begets a wise child shall have joy in him. And this first part is we, we're just talking about walking in the way of God, being guided in His way. And He says, "Be not amongst the wine wine bibbers and the riotous eaters of flesh, for the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe the man with rags." And we know basically this is saying you hang with the wrong people, you're gonna you're gonna become like them. And we all know that. This is why when we walk with Christ, we want to be friends with other Christians. We want to hang out with other Christians more often than not. Because when you go to the parties where the wine's flowing and the lots of food and you're if you have any desire for that at all, it's a tough place to be. My social circle has I've come up here with my hostility to be alone up here, and I've found that my new circle of you guys and my new Christian friends are, are a lot better than my old friends that I thought were my close friends. They're just out to uh, be self-centered. Take advantage of you. Self-centered, being taken, taking advantage of you. And expecting you to take care of them. Take, take my, advantage take of my brain. I give them good advice, and they don't listen, and that's not my fault, but I... You know, it's, it's not your fault. You give them good advice, but I, I appreciate you guys. And, and this verse is really clear. I mean, if you're going to hang around those that are drinking and, and eating, eating to gluttony, you know, it's going to rub off. And one thing about it is usually they'll use up whoever has money. It seems like <laughs> you know, so much fun. At the time. <laughs> at the time it seems like fun. You're, you're wasting your money. You know, you're throwing away your money. You're, you're getting rid of it. And it says that the glutton and the drunkard will come to poverty. They come to poverty because they're wasting their money on riotous living. This was what the prodigal sons did. He went out and he, yeah. he spoiled his inheritance on riotous living. And it could be, it could have been, you know, a lot of people will say he went out and got into prostitution. No, it could have been just like he went to the, he went to the inn and, every, and he bought everybody beers and wine the whole, the whole night and lost all of his money, you know. They, they used him until his money ran out and then they disappeared. Mm -hmm. And that's really what happens with these type of people. 
Whoever's got money gets used up until they don't have any money, and then everybody disappears to the next person who has money. Yep. Then you look around, where's all my friends that I've just had? You know, I need help. And they're not there. The same place they always were, nowhere. They, <laughs> they weren't your friends around. in the first place. Right. You know, and this is the way the world is. I'm going to use up whatever I can. I'm going to use people. I'm, I'm going to use people instead of loving people. Get, get everything I can from them, and then go on to the next person that is out there. This is the sad thing about the world's way of doing it. And all of us have been there ourselves probably where we used people to get whatever we wanted and then we moved to the next person. Or, and we've probably been used. And God is saying all of this will lead to rags and poverty. But he says, Hearken unto your father that begat you and despise not your mother when she is old. Buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and understanding and instruction. God wants us to say there's a great value in it. He says, buy, buy, acquire, obtain truth, obtain wisdom, instruction, understanding. How much do we value it? Are we willing to stand on those things and not get rid of it? We're not going to sell it out for anything? This will be coming the test for the church in these near, near, near months and years. As persecution comes upon us are we going to stand on his truth are we going to stand on his instructions in spite of what it's going to cost or are we just going to sell it to be accepted by the world this is a great thing that's coming our direction that we need to be aware of that we need to be praying for god give us the strength to hold on to your truth no matter what no matter what. They're going to put us in jail. They're going to beat us. They're going to persecute us. And I'm talking about not making, just making fun of us. We're talking about real persecution coming our way. When they start saying that what we believe is hate speech, are we going to be ready to go to jail? Or are we going to say, oh, I'm sorry, I really didn't believe that after all? Are we going to say Jesus is the only way to heaven when it becomes against the law to say so because it offends the, the Muslims or the or the Mormons, or the Hindus, or the Jews, or the, the uh, Buddhists. Buddhist. Where are we going to be? There's no back door into heaven. No back door into heaven, yep. No other way. But we need to be ready to keep it and say that I'm not going to recant. I keep talking about Fox's Book of Martyrs. There's a couple of examples in there of people who recanted and, and were let go. You know, most of them turned in others, and that's the only reason you know about them is they turned in others that got that held strong to their beliefs, and were persecuted, were killed. Some of them were crushed just by putting putting a board on them and keep piling weights on until they died. Some were torn apart by having horses tied to all their to their limbs and being ripped and ripped into four or more, depending on how their body Some broke. Some say that's how Isaiah died. Uh, I can't remember. I thought I've heard that he was sawn in half, but it's. Well, that's better than the. <laughs> I don't know if it's better or not, but it, yeah. it's still going to hurt. Still they stuck him in a log that. and sawed him in half. I mean, it's. The black folks in the south were being uh, hung upside down, and then the guy would come with a cleaver and cut him in half. Yeah, you know, that's that's part of what was done, and you know. Ah. Just because they're black, or they escaped. What they did, they left. Them. But this is this is the stuff that we have to look forward to because. The old ways will return. 
the old ways will return and we, and, and we will be persecuted. We will, we will probably pay with our lives. Right now, there are, in this day, in our day, there's is millions of Christians being killed every year, still. In, in Africa and, and the Indonesians, there are Christians being killed every day because of their faith. And now we've got ISIS killing them in the middle of the Middle East. It's not long until we're going to face the same persecutions. Very soon, you know, because of the way things are going, we're going to be facing persecution. We need to get our hearts ready and say, God, help me have the grace to be able to go through whatever you've got coming my way. Because it's going to be needed. We need to be ready. We need to get to buy truth and not sell it. Because it is so valuable, we need to understand the value of it and not be ready to recant, not to be ready to say, oh, it's not, I don't, I don't believe it, and be able to say, I stand for God. I stand for his truth. No matter what you want to do to me, I stand for God's truth. I stand for his ways. And it says, the father of, of the righteous shall greatly rejoice, and he that begets a wise son shall have joy in him. You know, and again, it's that back to that God. And I think this is looking at God. When God sees us stand up for him, he's going to rejoice. There's a crown for martyrs that he's got up in heaven that says, if you've gone to, to be martyred, he's got a special crown, a special reward for those who go to, to be martyred. And we need to get to the place where, as the disciples, we're going to say, thank you, God, that I'm worthy of suffering for Christ. He suffered for me. Thank you that you've decided that I'm worthy of suffering for him. And we need to get to that mentality. We need to start that mentality now on the little things that come into our life so that we'll be ready when something big comes into our life that we're going to say, thank you that I'm worthy of suffering for Christ. Because we're not going to make it if we don't take that attitude. We won't be like the disciples who take the beating and the very next day that they're released from prison go out and preach again so they can be beat when they haven't even healed from the first beating. Right. They're in the prison in the middle of the night praising God because they were worthy of suffering for Christ. Great things for us to be able to look at. Annie's favorite example of, the, of, the, of uh, Corey Ten Boom in, in the lice-filled barracks. And they go, praise God, we can worship God here in the barracks because the guards won't come in because of the lice. Now, that is something you really wouldn't think of, but they were praising God that they were worthy of suffering so that they could serve God because the guards wouldn't even come into the <laughs> barracks because they were afraid of getting lice. How embarrassed Peter was. Fleas. Fleas. Fleas or lice, whatever it was. Exactly. He yeah. denied them three times like Jesus said. He was so, so that he, he became stronger. But we want to be able to look at this. What has God done for us? Where are we? What are we going to accomplish? And are we willing to stand for him? Are all that we've done? So let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, Lord. We ask that you help us to learn to be ready to suffer for you. Teach us to have that attitude that we are worthy of suffering for you when we suffer. That it is not a curse. It is not a judgment. But it is the opportunity to despise the, the cost the, and be glorious in this, and rejoice in the, in the fact that we are worthy of suffering for you, that you've determined that we will not recant and will not step back. And we thank you for all that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay.